Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of February 3rd, 2024. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. Well, as I am ranting tonight, Joe Biden has just launched air raids on 85 sites in Iraq and Syria, targeting Iran-backed militia forces. If you want specific geography, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights names strikes on Al-Mayadeen and Al-Bokamal near the Iraqi border in Deir Ezzor province. While, according to CNN, a weapons depot was hit in Al-Qaim, Iraq, in Anbar province, also near the border with Syria, Baghdad has protested the strikes as a violation of its sovereignty, and Biden is promising more to come. Now, the U.S. has been exchanging airstrikes with Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria for years. But this scale is unprecedented, as are two other things. First, and most significantly, this time it wasn't just the militias themselves that were struck, but positions of an actual Iranian government entity, the elite Quds force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which has been grooming and overseeing these. Iraqi and Syrian Shiite militias, which in both cases are very closely cooperating with the official security forces in those countries. Secondly, rather than being launched from a base or an airstrip within Iraq or Syria, these strikes were carried out by B-1 bombers flown all the way from bases in the U.S. and Britain. So, sending the message that this is more like actual war as opposed to mere skirmishing. This, of course, is all retaliation after three U.S. troops were killed and dozens more injured in a drone strike January 28th, being blamed on one of the Iran-backed militias that have been stepping up their harassment of U.S.-led coalition forces in Iraq and Syria since eruption of the new Gaza conflict back in early October. The Republicans, those supposed peacenik isolationists, are calling for Biden to retaliate directly against Iran which is the worst-case scenario that could really broaden the conflict and even possibly draw in Russia, which we really don't want to happen. Biden says he's not going to do that, but attacking actual Iranian positions in Iraq and Syria is definitely upping the ante. There remains a sense, and more about this later, that both Washington and Tehran want to keep the fight confined to proxy forces in third countries, which isn't very nice for those third countries, but does 
lessen the risk of world war. But strikes on the Quds Force definitely brings us closer to direct conflict with Iran. And as we've stated many times before, brinkmanship is a dangerous game, and events have a habit of taking on a life of their own. Now, sometimes it is necessary to take sides. Even when U.S. imperialism is involved, and if, by accident, so to speak, is backing the right side. For instance, I found it necessary to support the Rojava Kurds in northeast Syria in their fight against ISIS, despite the fact that they were, and are, being backed by the U.S. And even if, as I warned, because it was inevitable, they've become embroiled in imperialist intrigues and complicit with grave human rights abuses, most obviously in the fall of Raqqa, the de facto ISIS capital, in 2017, with the city virtually destroyed by U.S. airstrikes in support of the Rojava Kurds as the ground force that took the city and is still occupying it today. And it should be noted that Raqqa is an Arab-majority city, not Kurdish, and the Rojava Kurd force, which controls it now, is definitely viewed as an occupying force by the local inhabitants. This shouldn't be overlooked, and a lot of Western anarchists who glorify the Rojava Kurds tend to overlook it. Still, it was absolutely necessary to support them in their struggle against ISIS, a genocidal enemy, particularly during the siege of Kobani two years earlier, before things got complicated. By the time the Rojava Kurds were themselves besieging Raqqa in 2017, I was starting to feel a little ambivalent. But in 2014-2015, when they were resisting the ISIS siege of Kobani, when the U.S. began undertaking airstrikes in their support, I supported them without any equivocation at all. It is similarly necessary today to support Ukraine in its struggle for national survival against Russian aggression, despite the compromises that the Ukrainian leadership has had to make in order to keep the U.S. and Western support coming. Most obviously, they have made a tactical choice to stay in the good graces of the West by betraying Palestine. and morally, if not materially, backing up the Israeli siege and bombardment of Gaza, which the world court has just ruled is plausibly genocide, their word. And Ukraine has certainly taken some authoritarian measures against elements of the opposition, seen as supporting the enemy, as is inevitable in wartime. Despite all of this, and I mention it all to drive home the point that it shouldn't be overlooked, it remains necessary to support Ukraine's war effort, 
and misgivings aside, I cannot help but root for passage of the military aid package being held up in Congress at this moment by the Republicans. But there are also times when it is necessary to take a neither-nor position, as me and my anarchist crew did in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and as I do now in the impending showdown between U.S. imperialism and the Islamic Republic of Iran. Biden's retaliation risks escalation to world war. It really does, which the planet has been on the very brink of since February 2022 anyway. And the U.S. is playing an utterly criminal and reactionary role in the region by backing up Israel's campaign of genocide in Gaza. I think we can safely call it that now. And attacking Iranian and or Iranian proxy forces in the region will only give them the cachet of anti-imperialism and anti-Zionism. And we really don't want to do that. We don't want to give them that cachet because they are also arch-reactionary and oppressive forces. Okay, first, I just want to go over, being my exacting self, a discrepancy in the reportage about where this drone strike of January 28th happened. Jordan or Syria? It is widely reported that the target was a site in Jordan, known as Tower 22, which provides logistical support for the U.S. outpost immediately across the border at Al-Tanf, Syria, near where the borders of Jordan, Syria, and Iraq intersect. However, a communique that day, January 28th, from the umbrella group for Iran-backed factions, known as the Islamic resistance in Iraq, did not mention Tower 22, but claimed responsibility for drone strikes on three sites within Syria. These are Al-Tanf, the nearby border outpost of Rukban, and Shadadi, over 200 kilometers away in Hasaka province, in the northeastern corner of Syria, near oil fields that are under the control of the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces. And while there were some, not many, reports of this statement from the Islamic resistance in Iraq, I was unable to find any reports of strikes on those sites in Syria. So, did they happen? Interesting question. Also that day, January 28th, a commander of Harakat al-Nujaba, one of the principal Iran-backed factions and member of the self-declared Islamic resistance in Iraq, said that the opening of talks between the U.S. and Baghdad on the withdrawal of coalition troops from Iraq would not mean a halt to its attacks on U.S. positions. Quote, Iraq's negotiations with the Americans will never cause a decline in efforts by the Islamic resistance against the outsiders. 
and they will even cause us to pile more pressure on the occupiers, end quote. An unnamed Nujaba commander told Iranian state media. As we noted in our podcast on the topic two weeks ago, the Baghdad government says that the U.S. is pulling out of Iraq again, kind of a sense of deja vu to all this, not the first time the U.S. has ostensibly pulled out of Iraq, (laughs) Uh, while the U.S., meanwhile, says it is sending more troops into Iraq. So this does not smell very good. Now, this whole militia network in Iraq and Syria was really set up by Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani, who was, of course, killed in a drone strike ordered by President Donald Trump in Baghdad in January 2020. And uh, this may be illustrative for the current situation. Iran responded to the killing of Soleimani by launching missile strikes on bases in Iraq that host U.S. forces, primarily Al-Assad Air Base west of Baghdad and a base in the Kurdish city of Erbil in the north, which has also been hit in the more recent tit-for-tat attacks. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps quickly took credit for the strikes, and the Pentagon said it believed that Iran fired with the intent to kill, quote-unquote, but the facts suggested otherwise. Media reports at the time, January 2020, indicated that Tehran gave Baghdad advance warning of the strikes so the Baghdad regime could get its forces out of harm's way. And the Baghdad regime, in turn, informed the U.S., which moved its forces out of harm's way. So there were no casualties in the strikes. And anonymous U.S. and European sources even told Israeli newspaper Haaretz, that the Iranians were thought to have intentionally targeted the attacks so as to miss U.S. forces. If Tehran's objective was to save face while still preventing the crisis from escalating, it appears to have worked. And Biden, ironically, may now be emulating that very same strategy. Clearly, Iran knew these strikes were coming ever since January 28th, now six days ago. Iran knew these strikes were coming and probably got all of its Quds Forces personnel out of harm's way. Again, that's why they call it a great game. And interestingly, on the subject of the great game... The U.S. and this Iran-backed militia network had been de facto allies against ISIS, definitely in Iraq, where they were both playing ball with the same Baghdad government, and to an extent also in Syria, although that's a more complicated situation, because the U.S. makes a pretense, at least, of being on the outs with the Bashar Assad dictatorship. Now, the U.S. and Iran were vying with each other for control and influence over Baghdad, even as they were both fighting ISIS, 
on the same side, as it were. But since the defeat of ISIS, at least in terms of its control of actual territory in 2017, the obvious has happened. The U.S. and the Iranian forces have fallen out with each other, and U.S. forces and Iran-backed militias have been intermittently skirmishing with each other, and this has been really escalating since the Gaza war began. This same militia network, under Soleimani's direction, repressed the anti-government protests in Iraq in 2019, serially massacring protesters, protesters who astutely and correctly opposed both U.S. and Iranian designs on their country and military presence in their country. Iranian protesters were also happy to see Soleimani go, even if it was at the hands of U.S. imperialism. His forces within Iran, including a groomed paramilitary militia called the Basij, have unleashed repression on the protests over economic conditions that broke out there that same year, 2019. And, of course, Soleimani's militia network has been backing up the genocidal Bashar Assad regime in Syria. And, in fact, have been carrying out a campaign there for going on 10 years now of sectarian cleansing, so to speak, with Sunnis being driven from their homes and villages and Shiite militiamen taking over their abandoned houses. And in some cases, real estate companies linked to Iran appropriating them. Again, just because you haven't heard about this doesn't mean it isn't happening. And repression within Iran by the forces Soleimani led and groomed have only escalated since his death. Last year in Iran, we saw the anti-hijab protests under the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom, which began after Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, was arrested by the morality police in September 22 for a wardrobe violation, as it were, that is, not wearing hijab or not wearing it properly. Her death in custody three days after her arrest sparked the uprising that lasted nearly a year. Several protesters arrested last year, among the hundreds arrested last year, have been executed for such absurd charges as rebellion against God, and several are awaiting execution, including the popular rap artist Tumaj Salehi, who has apparently been beaten and tortured in prison. Iran is one of the planet's worst executioner states. According to the group Human Rights Activists in Iran, Hrana, at least 746 people were executed in Iran in 2023, compared with 576 in 2022, which was already a record high. Lawyer and human rights defender Nazreen Sotudeh who has represented protesters in the waves of unrest going back years, was herself arrested 
on October 29th of last year after attending the funeral of Armita Jeravand, a young woman of just 17 years who died due to brain injuries, apparently inflicted by the morality police. Nazreen was freed on bail after being beaten in jail, but still faces charges, and she has served time for her activism in the past, including a sentence in 2018 for 38 years and 148 lashes for the crime of propaganda against the state. She was released two years into her term following an outcry from the international rights community. And it looks like we may have to raise such an outcry on her behalf once again. All told, in the uh, protests that began September 22 and continued for a little more than a year after that, some 500 protesters, including children, were directly killed by the security forces and actually thousands arrested, something on the order of 20,000 arrested. And let me emphasize that if some protesters in Iran had illusions about the U.S. as the rival of their oppressors, I think we can safely say that the U.S. has squandered that goodwill by backing up the Israeli genocide in Gaza these past four months. I want to invoke the slogan, Marg Bar Dictator, Death to the Dictator, first raised in 1979 during the revolution against the U.S.-backed Shah, and now heard again against the Ayatollah state and President Ebrahim Raisi. I should also note Raisi's role as a member of the Death Committee, a panel of special jurists that oversaw the secretive execution of some 3,000 political prisoners in the summer of 1988. After mass hangings, the remains of the victims were taken away in refrigerator trucks for burial in undisclosed mass graves. Most of those put to death were members of the Mujahideen Kalk armed resistance movement, which I will acknowledge is somewhat cultish and has problematic politics, but 3,000 executions is pretty extreme. And I'll also note that Mujahideen Kalk was less problematic and closer to its left-wing roots in 1988 than it is today. The conflict over Yemen also continues with the Iran-backed Houthis attacking shipping vessels in the Red Sea and the U.S. and U.K. in turn attacking the Houthis. And sorry to disillusion some of you, but the Houthis suck too. I'm really tired of all the online cheerleading for the damn Houthis and their attacks on shipping as some kind of, uh, you know, act of solidarity with the Palestinians. If it continues, 
The rerouting of ships around the Cape of Good Hope is inevitably going to jack up the price of grain. And as we noted in our last podcast about this stuff, this will in turn exacerbate hunger throughout the world, but especially in Africa and the Middle East, including Gaza. And the Houthis are responsible for monstrous crimes against the people of Yemen, as is, of course, the U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition that has been fighting them, a war that was beginning to wind down after almost a decade, before the current crisis started to re-inflame things. One example of Houthi crimes against the people of Yemen In a report issued December 11th, Human Rights Watch charged that Houthi forces are violating residents' right to water in the ongoing siege of the Yemeni city of Taiz. For the past eight years, the besieging Houthi forces have cut off the flow from watersheds under their control in the surrounding hills effectively cutting off the city's water supply. So, go ask the people of Taiz how they feel about your Houthi pals, all you confused internet partisans, who were so avidly and rightly protesting similar Israeli tactics in the siege of Gaza. And once again, the Houthis have also engaged in repression of secular protesters who oppose their rule. Last October, Houthi de facto authorities carried out a wave of arrests, rounding up scores of largely peaceful demonstrators who gathered to commemorate the 61st anniversary of North Yemen's 26th of September revolution. Amnesty International called on Houthi authorities to immediately and unconditionally release all demonstrators held solely for peacefully exercising their right to freedom of assembly, quote-unquote, on September 26th, the date marking the establishment of the secular nationalist Yemen Arab Republic in 1962, people took to the streets in cities across now Houthi-controlled North Yemen, including the capital Sana'a, carrying flags of the republic that was formally disbanded with Yemen's unification in 1990. I submit that the only correct position is U.S. and U.K. hands off Yemen, down with the Houthis, U.S. out of Iraq, Iran out of Iraq, including proxy forces. U.S. hands off Iran, Marg Bar Dictator. You with me? This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything that I have been ranting about is all blogged up, hyperlinked, and documented. Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Just a buck or two per podcast will make a big difference. And we just do one a week. So join the Counter Vortex. Join 
the resistance, and rant on you next time.